Good morning, everybody. Great to see you guys. Uh, I want to start with uh, just a quick word about uh, Father's Day. I want to say Happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room and dads online. Uh, hope that you're having an encouraging day. I, even as I say that, though, I realize that the moment we say the word father, and we're starting to think in our earthly context, that can really create a lot of emotion. Some of it can be great. Some of it can be really hard. So I, I do want to say uh, we, we recognize that as we celebrate, there can also be some real sadness, some real grief and heartache that comes along with that. So uh, I do pray that those of you who may be experiencing some of that sadness and grief, I, I pray the Lord will comfort you and meet you uh, in that place. Um, for those of you who are celebrating, and, and we want to do that this morning, um, I, I came across a prayer this week that uh, encouraged me. I, I've said countless times, there is nothing that's been more challenging for me in my life than being a dad. And uh, I don't know how good of a job I've done, but uh, I, you know, I'm, I've just kind of tried to stay at it. That, like guys say, can you give me some good fatherly advice? Just don't quit. Stay at it. Keep coming back. And, you know, you're going you're gonna to get a lot wrong. You'll get some things right, too. And God is big enough to cover all of that. But here's a prayer I came across that I thought, you know, most dads that I've met, this is what they're after. The prayer is, sanctify and prosper my domestic devotion, instruction, discipline, and example that my house may be a nursery for heaven. I absolutely love that phrase. Every dad wants his home to be a nursery for heaven. A place where God can bring children, adult children sometimes, to himself. Um, there's some hindrances that uh, certainly all of us encounter. And I like the way Paul mentions this in uh, 2 Corinthians and I, again, dads, I think you're going to relate to this. Sometimes it feels like, as Paul said, we're troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside and fears within, right? So you, there's a lot of hard stuff happening that's totally out of your control. And then there's all kinds of insecurities and fear and doubt and wonder on the inside. So that's, that's the reality of being a dad. That's, that's just a real experience over and over and over again. So let me give you this word of encouragement, Galatians 6, 9. I say this to myself over and over and over again. Let us not grow weary of doing good. In due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Um, dads, I want you to know that you have help, that, that it's not a solo endeavor, uh, you have God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. And you need to really lean into all of those if you're going to be the dad that God wants you to be. And um, I want you to know, I, I have experienced over the course of my life, there have been some great dads that I could go to and ask questions and get advice and just some encouragement. So if you're a dad, anywhere along the way, um, look around and find some other dads that you can go to and just get some encouragement and support. Um, if you are a dad here uh, in the room this morning, I'd love to have you stand. 
And uh, Dad's online. Again, we're celebrating you as well. But hey, let's, let's uh, encourage these guys. I want you to stay standing. I want to, I want to pray for you guys this morning. And again, all the dads online, let me pray for uh, all of us. Father in heaven, uh, there really is nothing that uh, can stretch us more than, uh, than being dads and realizing that uh, we're pouring into the next generation and there is so much that is out of our control. But Lord, help us to be faithful, help us to persevere, help us to not lose heart, and uh, give us all of the wisdom that we need to do everything that you've called us to do as dads. Lord, I pray blessing and favor on these men and uh, pray that you would sustain them, strengthen them, hold them up as they really seek to be the dads you've called them to be. I thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. You guys can be seated. Um, hey, we're going to do something fun this week. And uh, starting today, we assume that dads are going to be doing stuff at home. And maybe you have some traditions. Maybe there's a special meal or place you go or who knows what. So what we want to do, we're assuming that you're going to take some pics, right? So get your pics. Go to our Facebook page, and we would love for you to share those with us. Like, connect with us in that way. Share your pick on our Facebook page, and then give us just a little explanation of what's going on there. Like, what are you celebrating? Where are you celebrating? What, is this a tradition or a special meal or whatever? And uh, that way we can all kind of celebrate with you. So that's going to be available. Let's do that over the next few days. Cannot wait to see what all of you guys are doing in your homes to celebrate your dads. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 17. We're, we're in a new chapter. How about that? We have to celebrate every little uh, bit of progress we make here because we've come a long ways and we still got a long ways to go. Uh, man, this was such an encouragement to me this week, and it reminded me of a... Uh, kind of a theme that has always been helpful for me as I thought about the Christian life, and that is the theme of navigation. Navigation. And, uh, you know, it, I don't know if, like, you think about sailing, you know, oceanic kind of stuff, or hiking, journeying, that kind of thing. I learned something new this week. There is a sport called orienteering. How many of you have gotten into the sport of orienteering? Not a lot. Maybe it's an up-and-coming it started at the end of the 19th century, like 1890-something. And basically, it's racing on land with a map and a compass. And you got to get from point A to point B, and there's checkpoints and all kind of stuff, and it's all about speed, just getting there as fast as you can and racing against other orienteers. So uh, you got to learn how to use some tools. you got to learn how to use a map and a compass and find your way around. And I think that is a great picture of Christian living. So we're navigating life, right? And I don't know about you, but I don't know the future. And there's a whole lot that, 
that I'm just unsure about and I have to kind of find my way. And the Lord has given us some great resources in order to do that. I will say this, uh, four times in Paul's letters he uses a phrase, walk in a worthy manner. Walk in a worthy manner. So he even says, this life is a journey. Like you are orienteering through life. And there is a way of doing that that is worthy of what God has done for you, the life that he's given you. And there's a way that is not worthy. That doesn't really, it isn't consistent with who you are and what God has done. So we want to learn, even this morning, how to walk in a worthy manner. And this passage gives us some great landmarks. So when you're orienteering, literally, one of the things you have to do over and over and over again is you have to take a bearing. Now that sounded a little odd to me because usually we're like, find your bearings, like we use that phrase. But in the sport of orienteering, you've got to take a bearing. That's really just finding out where you are reorienting yourself to your destination, and then setting your course for the next leg of the journey. That's what taking a bearing is all about. And one of the things you'll do is look for landmarks so that you'll kind of know that you're headed in the right direction. So we get four landmarks in this passage. Spiritual influence, relational integrity, faithfulness, and Christian duty. Those are four things that you and I can look at to make sure that we're on the right track, that we're headed toward the destination that God intends. And also we can find out when we've gotten off track and then make some adjustments. So let's start with this first landmark, spiritual influence, and let's see what Jesus has to say about that as he's talking to his men. It is interesting that we live in a day today where Um, privatized faith is really promoted. And here's the idea about that. It's, It's that you can believe whatever you want to believe. And as long as you believe it sincerely, it must be true. Even if everybody else believes something different. Or even if something like Christianity that's 2,000 years old has said something differently than what you say you now believe or think. You can just dismiss all of that. Privatized faith says it's your faith. It's your truth. It's it's your way of doing things, regardless of anything else in the world or who that might affect. That's what's promoted in the world. But this landmark of spiritual influence says you better think about not just what you believe, but the kind of effect that it has on the people around you. Look at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Take a bearing. Find out where you are and whether you're on track and what adjustments you need to make. This word temptation, um, like we live in a sin-wrecked world. So Jesus is saying that's going to be part of the deal. 
there, there's always going to be temptations. Specifically what this is referring to, and it's using the Greek word scandalon, where we get the word scandal, it's the idea of enticement. It is a stumbling block. It's getting in the way of someone else's progress. Specifically, and here's the picture, man, this is, this is sobering. It's the baited trigger on a trap. I remember Dennis Rainey, one of the illustrations he would use with teenagers was he would say to them, you know, you're kind of sorting out what you think, what you believe, how you're going to live. And the, and the world is full of traps. And he would have a big old bag. And uh, he would show them a bear trap. And he would tell them, hey, one of these bear traps is inside this bag. And he'd say, who wants to stick their hand down in there? And how many volunteers do you think that he got? <laughs> right? Yeah, no way. Can you imagine a big old bear trap and a big old some, some kind of bait on there and that you just got to touch that pad and bam, you're caught. Saying, that's real temptation and you don't want to be the one that sets the trap for somebody else. Here's how serious it is. It would be better... If a millstone, and you can just think of a kind of a giant stone wheel that was used to grind up grain, it would be better, catch this, if that were tied around your neck and you were thrown in the ocean and taken to the bottom to drown. That would actually be better than being somebody who sets a trap of temptation for somebody else in their faith. That's how serious it is. That's how important your spiritual influence and mine is to God. Um, in Matthew 18 and Mark 9, that's another place where it's similar kinds of uh, statements related to temptation. In those two places, it talks about it'd be better to lose your hands, your feet, and your eyes if they cause you or anyone else to sin. Again, very, very sobering. Every one of us is going to be accountable for the influence that we have in other people's lives. Whether we are encouraging them to walk in biblical faith or we're encouraging them to depart from that faith and go off on their own way into that privatized faith. Um, do you guys remember what Cain said to God when God was looking for Abel? This was, by the way, after he killed his brother. <laughs> Am I my brother's keeper? And God, God most definitely said, yeah, you are. Yeah, we're, we are. We have a level of responsibility for each other. I can't force you to do anything, nor should I try. But I have to think about how my life encourages you to live your life. I have to take that into consideration. Now, there are two forms of temptation that I want to highlight this morning that I think Jesus is trying to get at. The first is apostasy. The second is um, liberty. These are two areas where we need to give some thought. Apostasy is literally falling away or punting your faith, leaving the faith. There's a lot of ways to think about that, but, but that's a thing, right? There are people... I'm going to highlight some this morning, and I want you to hear this. I'm not trying to run anybody into the ground. I'm not trying to 
bring any kind of slander to their name, nothing like that. I'm saying these are people who are visible, who professed faith in Christ at some point in their life, and now they have what's gone through what, what's called deconstruction, spiritual deconstruction or devolution or what, however you want to call it, where they're literally saying, I don't believe anymore. Now, I would just say to any one of these, with, the, with great compassion, you probably ought to read Luke 17. Because not only are you struggling personally with your own belief, but you're promoting disbelief. To others, here's a couple of folks. Bart Ehrman, he was at Moody Bible. He was a, he still is a professor, but very conservative. Like he kind of believed right in line with everything. Now today, he does not believe in the deity of Christ. He does not believe that he rose from the dead. And he believes that our Bible is completely unreliable. And he's written a number of books to that effect. On all three of those. So what we have to understand is Bart has departed from the faith. But here's the thing. His opinion of what is true and not true or the faith doesn't make it true or not true. It either is or it isn't completely apart from Bart or anybody else. Just because I stand on this stage and I say it's true doesn't make it true. It either is or it isn't. And you and I, we have to go to the scriptures, look at church history. We have to explore that for ourselves and come to a place where we land. If we're struggling with doubt, hey, that's fine. That's really okay. I want you to hear that. But first of all, do not struggle in doubt by yourself. You are your own worst enemy. And be honest about that with some others and invite them into that conversation. It's way bigger than you. Joshua Harris wrote a book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, years and years ago. And has since, again, completely abandoned the faith. Now, once again, there's a bunch of people who possibly inappropriately put too much credence on what Joshua had to say. And it came back to bite them because their faith can't rest on what Joshua says. It has to rest on what God says and what God is doing. Um, The most recent example that I've heard of is uh, Rhett and Link. Probably the oldies in the room are going to go, who? Rhett and Link? And all of the younger folks are going to go, yes, their YouTube channel is the bomb. I mean, it is awesome. Funny guys. They were uh, involved with parachurch ministry, very conservative in their faith, and both have since recorded YouTube, and I mean, they have millions of people that follow them. Big video statements about how they found that all of that faith was completely untrue. They've left it. That is apostasy. And... There is some accountability for that. I would say to them, hey, we don't need to hear about your deconstruction. If that's what you've decided, then have at it. But you, again, you don't make this true. So, great to be cautious there. And I'll mention this, 1 John 2.19 
This was a statement about those who had apostatized in the first century. They went out from us, but they were not of us. That's why they went out. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So apostasy isn't a loss of salvation. I want to be clear about that. If someone were to abandon their faith and forget it for the rest of their lives and just completely walk away, it's more likely that they never really had it to begin with. So apostasy, then liberty. I'll just real quickly about that. There is a liberty in life where we have a lot of freedom, but we are called to exercise our freedom with others in mind. So if you have trouble with some kind of behavior or practice or something like that, and it is not explicitly prohibited in the Bible, then I might avoid that so as to avoid putting a stumbling block, a scandal on, a temptation in front of you. So you can think of any number of things, but Paul was very explicit about saying, I set aside my freedoms so as not to cause someone else to struggle or stumble in their faith. That's how we consider one another more important than ourselves. So that is another way in which we're supposed to be sensitive to one another and uh, encourage each other in our faith. Uh, Jesus mentions little ones, and that's really not a reference to children, although it certainly applies But um, in addition to that, it it would be somebody who is spiritually vulnerable or immature, maybe new in the faith. So if you remember when you first came to Christ, you had a lot of questions. You're sorting a lot of things out. You might not have an ability to think about liberty in the same way that you will 10 years later or 20 years later or 30 years later. So more mature Christians are to keep in mind who's around them, their, their environment, and practice some self-control in order to not cause younger believers to struggle. That's the concept of liberty and temptation. Here's the big question that we want to ask. If we're going to take a bearing as it relates to spiritual influence, this is letter A in your outline, how are you inspiring others to live? Like you and I need to ask that question with some regularity. How are you inspiring others to live? You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, be imitators of me. Wow. We might think that's kind of an arrogant statement. I certainly don't think that about Paul. I think he was saying, you know what? I've made up my mind. I am pursuing Christ. I do it imperfectly, but I'm going after him. And if you'll follow me and do the same thing, it'll be good for you. So can you say that? Could you say to other people, based on how I'm living my life, imitate me. I've got my own issues. I I need to grow. I need to change. But I'm going hard after Christ. Imitate me. It'll be good for you. That's the idea here of spiritual influence. So how are you inspiring others to live? Now, in light of the inevitability of sin... There will often be, in a community of faith, the need for confrontation. Something very few of us are comfortable with. And those of us who are comfortable with it, we probably don't handle it very well. 
So this is a great teachable moment here. This is all about relational integrity. How do we relate to each other? That's our next landmark. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's, that is some tough stuff there, isn't it? So, first of all, if I'm in relationship with another brother or sister in Christ, and I see something that is very obviously in conflict with what God has said, I actually have a responsibility to go to them. I, remember, you're your brother's keeper. We're supposed to be mindful of each other. Now, I'm not, I'm not their master. I don't control them. But why wouldn't I? Because is sin ever good for us? Is sin ever good for us? No, it's not. So if I saw a brother or a sister sinning, it's not good for them, right? So why wouldn't I go and just say, hey, can I ask you about something? I'm not accusing. I'm not making statements. I'm asking questions. But I'm saying, are you okay? Is everything all right? Hey, I, I noticed something. Can you tell me more about that? Do you see how delicate I'm trying to be? But I'm still, I'm still asking. I'm not just going, well, gosh, I hope that, hope that goes well for them. I know they're blowing their whole life up, but I, I hope that turns out okay. That's not love. That's not care. Jesus specifically says you need to rebuke. Now, rebuking. Let's get, let's get our heads around that. That's not red-faced getting in somebody else's face with a finger on their chest going, you need to stop that. That's not a rebuke. A rebuke is a confrontation. It's just saying, hey, I noticed something and I wanted to ask you about it. Can we talk? And let's just see. And you know what? I may be seeing something wrong. That's possible. But I'm not going to know if we don't ever talk. So I'm called to rebuke. The world says, live and let live. It's none of your business. But in the body of Christ, in the community of faith, it's all of our business. Now, that doesn't mean we stalk each other around and try and find something to call out. I'm going to speak to that in just a minute. But it does mean when we see something and there is a relational appropriateness, like we're connected, then that's a great reason for me to step in or you to step in and just say, hey, are you okay? Matthew 18 specifically outlines a process that we are called to follow. If your brother sins against you, and this is specifically about offenses against each other, that's also another good thing to keep in mind. But if that happens, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, privately. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Celebrate. That's awesome. I've had some people do that for me, and I'm very thankful. I didn't particularly enjoy the questions to begin with, but I sure liked getting back in alignment with God's heart. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if they listen, celebrate. That's awesome. If they don't, then it sounds like they need some more help. So you bring another person or two, again, relationally appropriate, and you go, hey, 
I think we still got to ask and answer these questions. Third step, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's starting to get uncomfortable, isn't it? Again, remember, our choices affect more than just ourselves. We live in a community of faith. And we have to take that seriously. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, this is classically known as church discipline. Most people, unfortunately, have a picture of church discipline that is the the purpose is to kick people out of the church. The purpose of church discipline is restoration. The heart, every step of the way is, please come back. You're hurting yourself and you're hurting your community of faith and you're having an influence on them that you don't want to have. So we're inviting you back and we will continue to do so for your good and the good of God's people and His mission. If you get to that last place, basically we're just saying it seems like you don't believe anymore. So do we ever turn anyone away from the church because they haven't yet trusted in Christ? Seriously, do we? No! We would say, come on, come on in. You need to hear the gospel so that you can believe and so that God can transform your life. That's the purpose of church discipline. I want to give you five words that really give you the pathway. Rebuke, that's that confrontation. They're all R's, easy to remember. Repentance, hopefully that's the response. Then reconciliation, so where there is repentance, now that relationship can be made right. But we're not done yet because something really did happen. Something really does need to be addressed. And so the fourth is recovery. There is a pathway of change that needs to be followed. And then at the end of that is restoration. And that's when you get to really celebrate. You go, you know what? You've been on a path of recovery to a place where, man, we're in a good place now. That leads me to the statement about forgiveness. Um, Again, that's something that's easily misunderstood. Um, Forgiveness is a very active response to an offense. Um, It's saying that when I hear repentance, I need to verbalize forgiveness. Now, what isn't said there is, so do I not forgive if somebody doesn't repent? No. We're called to forgive regardless of what the other person has done. That's an internal thing. But we communicate repent or forgiveness where that repentance takes place. So there can be relational disruption until we get past that, uh, that initial rebuke and then a repentant kind of posture or response. So forgiveness, what is it? Literally, it is releasing a guilty party. It is putting away the right to punish. Now, that doesn't mean there may, there may still be some very real consequences that are associated with some choices. And I can forgive that person and them still experience some of that. A, a, a person could go into a home and steal everything and get caught and go before a judge and be found guilty and sentenced. And the owner of that home can still forgive that person. Do you see what I'm saying there? The the forgiveness part is the person who's offended keeping their house clean. 
inside, in their own heart, making sure that's all straight, while at the same time, there may be some consequences that come along with the choices that were made. Um, But forgiveness is putting away my personal right to punish. Now, it's amazing how often the Bible connects my ability or willingness to forgive and my understanding of the forgiveness that I have been granted. And when I find someone who really is struggling to forgive, the first place I'm going to go is, do you really understand what God in Christ has done for you? Do you realize that you had nothing to, to put yourself in a place of deserving the forgiveness that you've been granted? See, when we get that, we are far more free and honestly zealous about extending it to others because we understand what it means to us. Um, I like what Pastor Stephen Cole says here. While biblical forgiveness is a quick decision, the restoration of trust usually takes time proportionate to the seriousness of the offense. So that's where we get that whole process in the picture. So someone can offend me, they can repent, I can forgive, and there's still some work to be done. Not so that they can be forgiven, but so that our relationship can be fully restored. So, very important. This is another landmark, and here's the question. Are you willing to address sin in the family of faith? That is a part of making this journey. That's a part of the Christian life. All right. Number three, faithfulness. So imagine you're the disciples and you hear this like you got to rebuke and, and then you got to forgive. And, and you got to do it over and over and over again. If they're repentant, you got to. And at some point they're like, please, are you kidding me? We can't do this. And Jesus is probably going, yes, you're right. But, but look at the question here. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Like, we need a lot of faith. We need more faith to do what you've called us to do, Right? And here's what the Lord said, so interesting. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, that was one of the smaller seeds in all of the Middle East at that point, you could say to this mulberry tree, which is, those can grow enormous with incredibly embedded root systems. I mean, like, like it's not going anywhere. I think I read that it could, it could live for 600 years. So he's saying, you could have this little bitty faith like a mustard seed. And everybody's going, yeah, it's just a speck in my hand. That little bit of faith can tell this enormous tree that is rooted down deep into the ground. You can literally tell that thing to get up and go into the ocean. See the picture? If you were to do that, it would obey you, he says. So it seems like he's shifting their focus away from the idea that I need some quantity of faith to a place where I understand I need a quality of faith. Like my faith, it's not the size of it, it's the object of it. That's what really makes the difference. And therefore, it could be little bitty. But if it's placed in the right object, God can do profound, miraculous things in order to accomplish his purposes. 
Essentially, we are to exercise the faith that we have. That's the point. We don't necessarily need to think about how much or how little we possess. And it is a good question. Can we really quantify faith? You know, sometimes we look at other people and we see what they choose to do or not to do or whatever, and we sort of marvel at like, wow, they must have a lot of faith. When in reality, all they're doing is exercising the faith that they have. And and let's think about faith for a minute. It's not heroic. It's not like, man, you're really something if you exercise your faith. What it is, it's an exercise in dependence. That's all faith is. It's a desperation. It's just saying, I recognize I can't do this on my own. I need help outside of me, bigger than me. So I'm going to act upon this promise from God that he will be sufficient for me that he will enable me, that he'll direct me, that he'll empower me. Like, I'm going to live as if that's really true. That's all it is. That's not great faith. It's just faith. Now, when Jesus talks about the faith of this person is great, I think what he's saying is they really see God and his promises for what they are. So it's not a a quantity. It's a quality of faith. And it's simply acting upon that out of a a heart of dependence. Uh, One author said, God can do a lot with a little trust. And that's a great statement to tuck away. Whenever you're facing life and you feel overwhelmed and you feel afraid and insecure and everything else, just remember, God can do a lot with a little bit of trust. That's all he needs. Here's the question for this landmark. Are you exercising the faith that you have? It was almost like the disciples were trying to sidestep the responsibility that Christ was putting on them. In other words, they could say, you know what, I don't know if I can avoid being a temptation and I don't know if I could really rebuke somebody and I'm not sure if I could forgive them because I just don't know if I have enough faith. And the Lord was saying, oh no, you got plenty of faith. The question is, are you willing to exercise it? in the way that I have commanded you? That's the question that we got to get at. That's how we take a bearing as it relates to our faithfulness. Lastly, Jesus talks about Christian duty, this idea of obedience. And this may be a little bit surprising to you if you haven't read this passage. Look in verse 7. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. Will that master, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, this is such a great passage for North American Christians. (laughs) Because we are all about, man, like equality in every way in terms of like we're sameness, democracy, power, all that kind of stuff. 
And we don't ever want to be in a position where we're not in power. And, and I don't think that Jesus is discouraging that from an earthly perspective. But he is certainly saying, don't mistake that earthly stuff with your relationship to God. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. We don't get to vote. Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, and King. And we're not. He is the Creator. We are the created. Now, we are incredibly loved. God has lavished us with grace and mercy, loving kindness that goes on forever. That is all true. But we should never mistake all of His goodness for us that, oh, yeah, there's really no difference. In fact, God's saying, what do you want to do? Like, instruct me, advise me. God will never say that to you or me, ever. So the illustration is just to emphasize, if you're a child of God, praise God. Man, that is a precious thing. But while being a child of God, you are still a servant of God. And he has some very specific things that he wants you and I to do. He gives us countless commands throughout the New Testament. And he's never offering those as suggestions. He's the Lord. He's the master. He's the king. He says, this is what I want you to do. It is a command. And so what do we expect? Moms and dads, when you give your child a command, what do you expect? Obedience, right, yeah. It's it's not a power trip. It's just, I said to do this, and I want you to do it. And if you don't do it, then there's some kind of consequence. There's some kind of loss there. That's the nature of commands. Now, we live in an entitlement culture, and and that's kind of what Jesus is addressing here. We're sort of conditioned to think, well, if you do what God tells you to do, then you put him on the hook for whatever you want. That's actually, that's, that's the prosperity gospel. And Jesus is going, listen, that doesn't exist. God's not on the hook for anybody. He obligates himself for his own good pleasure. He shows you kindness and grace and mercy, not because you performed well enough, but just because he wanted to. So therefore, the motivation to obey is not to get something. It's because you've already received it. And when I think about it that way, then I see God and Christ. I see them rightly. That he is my master. He is my king. And if he says jump, I want to jump. If he says run, I want to run. If if he says sit, I want to sit. Not so that I can get more from him, but because he has already been so kind. We don't earn favor by following. We follow because we have his favor. A passage that uh, hit me years and years ago, and again, I, I remind myself of this probably on a weekly basis, but 1 Corinthians six nineteen. just write that down. Again, this just puts things in perspective. We're 
talking about orienteering, navigating through life. This is one of those landmarks you don't ever want to get away from. The idea of Christian duty is fueled by a reality, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul says, you are not your own. You are not your own. He goes on to say, you've been bought with a price. We celebrated communion today. The body and blood of Christ sacrificed so that you could be in relationship with him. He bought you back. And therefore, you are his. You are not your own. You don't get to just do whatever you want to do. You and I always come to him with a posture of, what would you like, Lord? And I'm ready to go. We do that imperfectly. That's a process of growth. But that's, that's the destination. That's what we're going after. Um, lastly, I'll, I'll say this again with entitlement culture in mind. Jesus isn't a customer service rep devoted to providing you and I with a great customer experience. This isn't a transaction. The exchange literally has already been made, and that was God took my sin from me and all of its consequences, and he gave me the righteousness of Christ. And he's not about making sure my life is just all fun and beauty and happiness and all that kind of stuff, because usually it's hard. What he's promised is his presence and his faithfulness. That's a sweet gift. So here's the question that we want to ask on this landmark. Is your posture toward Christ more like a servant or more like a customer? Are you coming to Christ and saying, listen, you saved me, I'm yours. Whatever you want, whatever you say, I'm on on board. Send me. Or... Are you negotiating, trying to get a better deal, (laughs) trying to get something that really is more about your interests than his? Very important question. As we come to the end of this message, I I just want to offer those four questions as your so what for today. How are you inspiring others to live? So just give some thought to this here as as we're wrapping up. How are you inspiring others to live? Are you willing to address sin in the family of faith? Are you exercising the faith that you have? And is your posture toward Christ more like a servant servant or a customer? Give that some thought and then I'll pray for us to close. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, the journey that all of us are making. Lord, I'm thankful today that we're making this journey together. And uh, as Chad mentioned earlier, we, we, we really do believe together is better, even though that can be hard at times. Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for all the resources that you provide for us so that we can follow you. 
Lord, thank you this morning for these landmarks that help us find our way. And uh, as we think about these questions, Lord, help us to be honest. Help us to be transparent and dependent. And uh, use your Holy Spirit to bring to light those things that need to change. And uh, thank you, Father, that you don't just leave us in that, but you stay with us and walk with us and you help us to change in beautiful ways. Pray you'd help us to walk in that confidence this week. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so good to, to get some time with you this morning again here and online. Hope you have an awesome, awesome day. Remember that registration for next week will open immediately after the second service. So uh, go on there and, and go ahead and get registered so we can be prepared for you next week. If you're a guest, again, we're so glad that you're here. Um, I'd love to meet you. Just shake hands and, and put a name with a face. Um, otherwise, have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.